empower us, equip us to be the men and women you've created us to be. We just say we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, docs, go ahead and grab a quick seat. All right, so it just dawned on me at the uh, beginning of last service that as of this coming week, Doxa Church is officially three years old. We made it, three years, who knows? Okay, but um, guys, it's a, it's a really exciting thing, okay? And really kind of one of the fun parts about this is like, man, just to watch how God has moved in the last several years of our, of our church. But we came here as a church plant from Cornerstone Church of Ames in Iowa. Um, Troy Nesbitt was the founding pastor there. He's the director of the SALT Network, who basically is the network that we're part of, a family of churches that's on mission together. And so really excited. Troy is a good friend, godly man, a mentor of mine, and so just honored to have him here. So give it up for Troy. I love that man. You guys have an awesome pastor. It is known about Rob in our network, not only is he the biggest pastor in our SALT network, as he might be the biggest pastor on earth, uh, he is known and has a reputation of being uh, the most humble pastor in our network, and he's just a man who is like Jesus, and it's an honor to serve with him. It was an honor to send him. It is a blessing for you guys to be led by Rob, but not only Rob, but the team here. My son-in-law actually is your worship leader, Jesse Anselman, married my oldest daughter, and uh, we were angry with him when he decided to come with Rob to plant this church, but we're super excited that you guys are a part of that. And I want to let you guys know, church planting doesn't normally go like this. Uh, you are a huge baby, a huge three-year-old. In fact, I have my 13th grandchild on the way, and uh, we're about to actually get a pastor in our network who's going to be bigger than Rob because it's my other son-in-law who played basketball for University of Iowa. He's 6'8", and he probably weighs about three bells now, and he is going to be a really big pastor, And but he is also super humble, and we love him, but they have four children now. He has three daughters, my oldest granddaughter is in the 99th percentile of all of six-year-olds. She's taller than my eight-year-old grandson, who's Jesse's son. And then he has two more daughters, and they are in the 98th percentile of their age group. And then he finally had a son, and he is the shrimp of the group. And I thought, oh man, I put grandpa jeans on that dude. He's only in the 97th percentile. So uh, I want you guys to know, God is blessing this church. Three years old, as church plants go, you're in the 99th percentile, okay? You're just way up there. And that is just the favor of God. And I hope that you guys feel that. I hope that you enjoy that. I hope that you can relish in it. But I also hope that you'll be faithful and humble, that it is the hand of God that is on this church and on your life. And yet, no matter what God is doing here, there's more to be done, is there not? There are thousands of university students in Salt Company who kick off this week, but they're not all going to come to Salt, are they? 
And there was a little event yesterday in your city where another team came to town and there was an event and there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of worshipers who gathered there, did they not? And yet we want to see God do things like that in this city and on this campus. And the purpose of our network is to actually plant a church that loves college students in every major university in North America and literally to plant in global cities across the world. And so this year, we had the privilege of planting at the Ohio State University. You don't have to applaud that, I understand, but those people need Jesus as well. Would you not agree with that? And so SALT has kicked off there. SALT has also kicked off this year at University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio, and also this year at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. Next year, as you know, we're hopefully going to be sending a team from this church to plant that other university in Michigan, Michigan University. We already have one at Michigan State, and so you don't have to applaud that, but do send Dave with your love and all of that team because they need Jesus as well, right? I mean, we're going because we want to win at all sports, but also we're going because those people need Jesus. But then we're going to have our first plant next year as well in New York State at the University of Syracuse. So I would invite you guys to be praying for that team. There are 1.3 million students that attend university in New York State. And so that's an exciting venture for us to be participating in. And then also at Illinois State in Bloomington Normal we'll be planting. And then we have plans for planting others. And I hope, I hope that you're encouraged about that. I hope that you're participating in that. And I hope that you're excited to see what God would do because you understand There is a lot of work going on. Um, You know, I have learned through my phone that has Google on it that the average college students, are you aware of this? Spends eight to 10 hours a day looking at this little device. Liking stuff, following stuff, posting stuff, learning little right? And in fact, engaging in conversation, not face-to-face, but often face-to-screen and then screen-to-face. Have you seen that? Even married couples in restaurants. And I know I'm making you feel bad because all of us maybe have a bad habit and an addiction when we should put our phones away, but my goal today is not to make you feel bad. I actually want to encourage you to use this device in somewhat a positive way. You know, you can get a Bible app on this, and you actually can make that Bible go through your earphones, and you can listen to the Word of God as you walk to class or as you go to work and as you make your commute, and you can actually boost your screen time to things that are actually profitable and not destructive. But another thing that you can do, you have on your phone a little alarm system that you can set it at certain times in the day, and it will go off, and it will remind you of things that you need to do, like wake up or have food or take your medicine. And one of the things that we do in our network is we set our alarms for 10.02 every day, or if you're super spiritual, you can set it for twice in the a.m. and the p.m. as a reminder for us to pray. And today I want to talk to you a little bit why we do that. We started Salt Company from the verse Matthew 5.13, and that's our theme verse for Salt Company, but also we now have as a network a theme verse, Luke 10.2, and you've maybe seen the 10.02 shirts, because we want to remind our people that Jesus' one prayer request was that we pray for laborers. 
And we believe there's a lot of work to done, and we believe there's a lot of people that need to be praying, and we believe that we need to engage in that. And I want to tell you the story of how that started, because some people like stories. We actually, uh, when we started Cornerstone Church of Ames in 1994, it started from the salt company. But we wanted to be a local church with a global vision. And so before we even started the church, we went to the country of Albania to share the Jesus film all summer long with remote villages. And I met a young man there who was becoming a pastor who actually planted a church Two years after we planted a church, he planted a church in Tirana, Albania, which is the capital city of Albania, called Cornerstone Church of Albania. Well, they were celebrating their 20-year anniversary in 2016, and so they asked me to come to participate with their 20-year celebration. And so I was over there, and we were driving to another city because he had a vision for planting every major university in Albania with a church and a ministry to reach college students. And so we were driving to another city, and he was wanting me to help plant that church there. And all of a sudden, it got to be 10.02, and his alarm went off. And he and I were rambling, and we struggle for airspace because I talk a lot, and he talks a lot. And his alarm went off, and he just slapped his alarm off, and he said, yes, Lord, more laborers in Jesus' name, and then kept talking. And I went, time out. What are you doing? And he said, oh, just the 1002 prayer. Like everybody knew what that was. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's from Luke 10 too. Like everybody has memorized that verse. And I said, help me. I don't even know what you're talking about. He said, you're not familiar with Luke 10 too, where the Lord asked his followers to pray for laborers. He said, there was a guy here from the States. I thought everybody knew about this. And he actually sets his alarm at 10.02 every day. And so it encouraged me. And so I set my alarm at 10.02 every day. And so every day I am reminded at least whether I do it or not to pray in answer to Jesus's request for laborers. And I thought, that's a good idea. And so I have decided, I think we all should do that. Now, whether you do it or not, that's completely up to you, okay? But for me, you know what it is? It has begun to actually change my thinking. Most of the time when my alarm goes off at 10.02, I'm annoyed by it. It's an interruption. I, just like my friend Uli, often shut it off and pray that little prayer. Yes, Lord. Sometimes don't even do it out loud. It's fun, my grandchildren now, when the alarm goes off, I'll say, what was that for? And they'll say, we pray for missionaries. I don't know why their parents told them that. <laughs> you know, Pray for missionaries? Okay. But I would encourage you to do that as well, to become a part of the story. But I want to tell you, why that's rooted in scripture. And we're gonna go first to John chapter four. We'll eventually get to Luke chapter 10. But I wanna challenge you to be a person who sees and who prays and who begins to participate in what God is calling us to as the people of God. So in, Luke, in John chapter four, it's the story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman. Now, if you haven't read that story, I would encourage you to read that story. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. But Jesus has now recruited his disciples, and he's beginning to do ministry. 
Now let me back up to say about the disciples that most people, when they think about the disciples, they think about men who had beards roughly in their 30s. Guys, that would have been a cultural anomaly. In fact, most scholars, many scholars believe that Jesus' disciples were most likely teenagers, most likely men from the ages of 15 to 18 years old. And in fact, many scholars believe the only one that was over 20 was Peter because he was the only one who had to pay the drachma tax, which was people for 21 years and older, and he was the only one who was married. And in that culture, when you turned 18, for a Jewish boy, that was the time to get married. And you became a disciple, or you had a rabbi, from the ages of 15 until 18, until you got married and went into your career. And so Jesus, being a rabbi, you could become a rabbi when you were 30, and that's when he started his ministry, most likely selected young men, teenagers from the culture that he would eventually give the Great Commission who would eventually change the world. And so one of the reasons that we go after university students is we have seen historically that all of the major movements of God in this country and throughout world history the Great Awakening, the, the Reformation, all of those were on the backs of young men and women who believed God wanted to change the world and wanted to use them to do so. And it began clear back with the disciples. And so now these young men are with Jesus. They're beginning to see his miracles. He sent them into the city to go get some food while he's resting at a well. And Jesus encounters a woman a Samaritan woman at the well, and you can read the story, but basically Jesus says to her, I am the living water, and if you believe in me, I'll give you water, and you'll never thirst again. Not talking about her physical thirst, but also her spiritual thirst, and literally, he transformed her life on the spot, and she went into the city, and she transformed the city, but that's the bulk of it, but I want to point out what the disciples were doing. So they came, and they see Jesus, and they were appalled to see him doing what he was doing. They were talking among themselves. What's, uh, whoa, 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 what's he doing? And in this, often the way we are, Jesus doing what God does, and we're kind of upset with him. Well, why? Well, first of all, Jewish men, especially rabbis, didn't talk to Samaritan women. Second of all, it wasn't just a Samaritan, it was a Samaritan woman. And third of all, it wasn't just any old Samaritan woman, it's a woman who actually, some would say, is a woman of the streets. But maybe not just a woman of the streets because women of the streets don't tend to be married. And this is a woman who was with her fifth relationship, already had four failed marriages. This is the kind of person that a rabbi wouldn't be spending one-on-one -on -one time with at the well. And Jesus' disciples were appalled, shocked. And it was in that context, early in Jesus' ministry, where he said these words, John 4, 35. He said, hey, fellas, don't you say that there's still four months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm saying. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for the harvest. Open your eyes and see. Lift up your heads. If I were to write a redneck Bible, 
it would be in this verse that I would put, get your head out of your backside. What Jesus was saying is, can you not see that I'm changing the world and all nations, and I'm using this woman to be the first missionary to the Samaritans? Isn't it interesting the different things that we see? Let me ask you a question. If Jesus were to engage in your life and you were to engage in a conversation with Jesus, would he be saying to you, lift up your head and see? Do you see what I see? We train ourselves to see what we want, right? I remember when I was a kid in the summer, I roofed houses and it was hard for me to not drive through a neighborhood and not evaluate all the roofs. And then I got a job with the landscaping company. It was hard for me not to evaluate all of the landscaping. And then I get a different job. And every time you get a different job, you begin to observe different things. And I really love the outdoors. And so when I'm driving, my wife hates it when I'm driving because I'm a distracted driver because the road is always the road and I'm always looking for the wildlife beside the road. She thinks I should keep my eye on the road. And I'm the same way in the woods. I'm really a freak in the woods, right? Like, I don't want to go hiking with you if you want to talk to me, because you will scare the wildlife. I was hiking this summer in Wyoming, by the way. This is just illustration, little side note. My friend, who's a hiker, uh, was behind me on the trail because I was trying to get enough ahead of him that I could be the first one to see whatever I wanted to see. And uh, he stepped on something that made a noise like... And uh, it startled him, and so he exclaimed, and it startled the guy that was with him, and so he exclaimed, and he just exclaimed, I just stepped on a rattlesnake. To which they ran away, ran away. To which I heard the rattlesnake, so I ran to the snake because I wanted to see it. Right? I understand this is odd. But then not only did I want to see it, once I saw it, I wanted to touch it. Now, most of you are thinking, you're a fool. But you just haven't Googled this yet. Do you know how many people in our country get bitten by poisonous snakes every year? Don't do it now. 7,000. Just trust me. Do it later. Okay, of the 7,000 people that get bit every year by snakes in this country, how many of them die from the snake bite? Just, Just answer it in your own mind. Tell your spouse later or your friend later what you said. Okay, here's the answer. Five. 7,000 bites, five die. All right? So that's a risk I'm going to take. Because you know what the feeling and the exhilaration is if you're one person who actually gets to pick up a wild rattlesnake? and all, That's 100% exhilaration. 100% of those people do it. You know, those that run away, run away, run away all you want. But those of us who run to it and pick it up, the joy that we get to feel when we hold a wild rattlesnake in our hands is like, I'm the king of the universe, right? Okay, so you guys think that's dumb that I even did that, right? I'm okay with it. But you know what I did after that? I started looking for rattlesnakes like I'd never looked for rattlesnakes again before. And I wanted to see But the question today is not about snakes. I want to ask the question, what do you see when you open your eyes? When you look on your campus, what do you see? When you look on your city, what do you see? And do you see what God sees? See the disciples, they were with God and they couldn't see what he was seeing and he said to them, pick up your heads, you can see the harvest. 
but I see a different kind of harvest. Do you see what I see? It says that Jesus often, when he looked on a multitude, they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost and astray. They would certainly perish. And he looked on them and he saw and he challenges us, lift up your heads and see. So Jesus began to disciple these men, and by the time we get to Matthew chapter 9, it's also in Luke chapter 9, he says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, the harvest is plentiful. Not only do you see the harvest, but do you see the abundance of the harvest? But here's what I see, the workers are few, therefore pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into the harvest. Do you see the harvest? It's plentiful. Do you see how many laborers in the harvest? Not so plentiful. It's one thing to see it. Here's the way that I can know if you see. Okay? It's a, little, it's a fun little game I play. It's called Evaluate Your Prayers Game. I am just going to assume you pray. Or when you listen to someone else pray, you say, Lord, hear our prayer. That's for me too, right? It's like, Lord, hear our prayer. Good. That counts. Maybe you say, thank you for the food. That counts. Those are not bad. Any prayer is a good prayer. Okay? But if you were to evaluate the bulk of your prayers, would you say that the basic idea that you have about God, if I were to evaluate your prayers, is that God exists to serve your agenda? As an American, you do know that you're probably one of the richest people on earth. In fact, you're in the top percentile. A poor person in this country is a rich person in the world. You've been given more than any culture and any society of all times. You have opportunities to sit in these great buildings and to participate in great jobs and get great education and actually drive your cars or your vehicles wherever you go. Wear multiple changes of clothes. Guys, we are filthy rich. And when I hear Americans pray, here's basically what I hear them pray. God, I've been given so much by you. Thank you, Lord. How can I be a blessing to somebody else? There's nothing else that I want. There's nothing else that I need. Why on earth are you blessed? Blessing me, God. You've overwhelmed me with your blessing. Please, God, make me a blessing to somebody else. Is that, is that how we pray? No. It's like, God, I have so much. Please give me more. I know you're all powerful. I know you can do all things. I have messed up so much. Can you fix it? Can you make me happier? It's almost as though we think God is all-powerful for the purpose of serving us. Who is all-powerful in that situation, and who is the God in that situation? It's almost like our prayers are rubbing a genie on a bottle and saying, oh, God, this is what I want now. This is my three wishes. Do you think God hears and responds to those prayers? Oh, he hears them. Do you think he responds to them? <laughs> what did Jesus say to his disciples? Fellas, <laughs> you're so cool. I just want to be like you. Can I follow you? And what did he say? He said, follow me. And I will make you to become fishers of men. Open your eyes and see. The fields are wide unto harvest. And pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. Laborers. 
Then we get to Luke chapter 10, which is our key text this morning that I want us to look at. It says, after this, Jesus was performing all kinds of miracles. He was training those disciples, but others were beginning to follow him. And it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and every place where he himself was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into this harvest. So they're praying this prayer. And now what he looks at, he says, now go. I'm sending you. Whoops. You know what I've discovered why most people don't want to pray? <laughs> because God is scary. Most people know that God won't serve our agenda. And we're a little afraid that God maybe won't do what we want him to do or give us what we want. And exactly right, when you begin to see the fields and you begin to pray for the fields and you begin to pray for laborers, what begins to happen in your heart? You begin compelled and then you begin to hear the voice of God saying, go, I'm sending you. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. I love that, the prayer, the word translated pray, literally, I love the ESV translation, it is pray earnestly. Cry out in desperation. Have you ever been desperate in prayer? You've been begging God to do something that you believed he wanted to do, and so you were crying out for him to do it. I'm going to tell you something. God is desperate to save people. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And our primary role as believers, those who have been found, is to pray that he would find others, that he would save others, because only God saves. But when we begin to pray for the lost and pray for the laborers and pray for the harvest, God begins to compel, compel us to be more like him, to pray more earnestly. Are you aware of what's going on in Afghanistan? Certainly you've seen it on the news. Have you had conversations with others about what's going on in Afghanistan? Are they political conversation or are they gospel conversations? Guys, do you know that our brothers and sisters in that country are, country are being butchered? Did you know that there's more martyrs, martyrs today than there were in the first century? And Christians around the world are primarily being persecuted for their faith. And every place they're being persecuted. Do you think the gospel is dying? No, it is not. And in fact, often the gospel spreads in the midst of trouble and persecution. Look at the first century when they decided to kill Christians. That's when the gospel went to the ends of the earth. 85% of the churches in our country are dying and declining. Eighty-five percent. And in those churches, the vast majority of them have no young people, no next generation people. I'm telling you, we're beginning to live in a day where you're going to be persecuted for your faith in this country. And what you're going to see is just following Jesus doesn't give you your best life now. In fact, following Jesus might be more akin to the way it is around the rest of the world. And it might be more akin to what Jesus said would be true. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Blessed are you. He sent these disciples out. And he said, 
here's what will happen. They will kill you. What do you expect? What did Jesus ever do wrong? How did he ever sin? They murdered him by nailing him to a cross. And what did he say to his disciples? I did it for your best life now. No, he said, they did it to me, they'll do it to you. And when you know they're gonna do it to you, guess what, you pray more earnestly. Now go, he says, I am sending you. When you see what God sees, you're moved to pray. Whenever you begin to pray, you're moved to go. And sometimes you do crazy things. I was in Columbus last week. You guys know that other school there, right? We talked about it already. For their church kickoff. And I met a young couple. Beautiful couple. And they had come from another one of our churches. And they were excited to talk to me because they were a part of this church plant. And I said, well, what did you guys major in? Both of them have degrees in in biochemical engineering. Okay, so I thought, probably we're not gonna be able to have a real conversation. That, that was one thought that I had, and then also, since they both had that degree, I thought, there's more brains in this family than my extended family, right? And I had a lot of extended family. And, and so I said, man, this is a great city, lots of jobs in this city, so I assume you guys got great jobs. And here's what they said to me, we don't have jobs yet. You know what my next thought was? I actually said it out loud. What do your parents think about that? Right, because it's not free to get a bio, whatever they got, engineering degree, biochemical engineering degree. And he said, well, we came here to help plant this church with our parents' blessing. But they really would like for us to get a job. But we believe God is going to provide a job because we believe God called us to come here. And my next thing was I said, oh, Lord, hear our prayer, (laughs) right? But they're not wasting their life, guys. And God is calling them to a field that is widened to harvest, and I pray that they would have stories of what God does when they walked out in obedience. When I was raising my kids, my daughter, my second daughter, one time when she was about 10, we were having a conversation. I did like all good parents do. I, I tried to inspire her by asking her, what are you going to be when you grow up? Did your parents ever do that to you or you do that as parents? And you want them to say something awesome, right? She said, oh, Dad, I'm going to be a missionary. And you know what my response was? Honestly, On the inside, I was screaming, no, not my kid. I'm trying to help other people do that. Because I was confused. I thought the blessing of God was to keep my family close, but actually the blessing of God is to raise warriors for the kingdom of God, men and women who will go. We get to be family for eternity We want to raise our kids, not to just give us comforts and to spend time together as a family, but actually to send our family to the ends of the earth because we're part of a bigger mission, because we're part of the family of God. And look what we're sending them into. Like lambs among wolves. Did you see that? You you understand this analogy or this picture 
right? Lambs, not rams, lambs, the little guys, bad. Among wolves who hunt in packs, the big guys. Even the lone wolf is scary. You know Red Riding Hood, right? Big bad wolf, three little pigs, <laughs> big bad wolf. You know, at, at what point did Peter not want to speak up during this discipleship moment? Wouldn't this have been a good time for him to say, hey, Lord, oh, you missed it again. He's doing this all the time, right? And I mean, he was the oldest one, but he wasn't super smart. Shouldn't he have said, Lord, I think you, you mixed your metaphors. You, you kind of got that wrong. Can you, you know, well, okay, we see the fields, we're waiting to harvest. So could you give us some, like, power? We want to be the wolf. Or something scary, at least. A big dog. Bear. Not bad. And what was the promise? That he would protect us? No, the promise is that he would be with us. You know when you get to experience the presence of God, it's actually when you're following him, doing what he wants. It's not when you're trying to get him to follow you so that he would do what you want. You experience the presence of God as you walk with him, not as he walks with you. Yes, he will be with us, but he will be with us in that place. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You remember that story in Daniel? King Nebuchadnezzar, he looked in the fire. And they had already decided to go into the fire, and they didn't know the Lord was going to join them there. They actually said, if we die, we still will go. Because we're not living for this world, we're living for the world that is to come. And guys, that is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ did not call us to live our lives for this worldly good. In fact, he instructed us not to do that. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There are no moths, no rust, no thieves. Isn't this the gospel? Didn't the apostle Paul say, fix your mind on things above? Set your hearts on things above. Didn't Jesus instruct all his disciples, it's not about this world. Look what I have in this world, suffering and hardship. But there's a world that has come that is glorious, that mind cannot even fathom how awesome it's going to be. Live for that. Live for that. It's interesting, the disciples' lives, all of them except for John died martyrs, without. You ever read Hebrews 11? It is the book of faith. And what's the repeated verse in Hebrews 11? When you repeat something, you're emphasizing it, right? What I said is when you repeat something, you're emphasizing it. So if I were to say something again, I would be trying to emphasize it. So in Hebrews 11, which is all about faith, there's something that's repeated. 
by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then repeated twice in that historic chapter of all the heroes of faith, it says this, all of these died in faith. They still had faith when they died. Their faith was perfected in their death. And then the next word is without. All of these died in faith without receiving what was promised. Because the promise was not for this life, the promise was for the life that is to come. And yet they lived in faith. Even Jesus, who endured the hardship and died on the cross for the joy that was set before him. He calls us to the same thing. I wonder how many of us are here this morning because we're pursuing Jesus, because we think in pursuing him, he will make our life better in this life. And I promise you, he does make your life better. It's a joy to have the character of Christ. It's a joy to have the stability of forgiveness of sin and no secrets because of confession and the beauty and the glory of the gospel so that we can be free from the trappings of this world to live for a kingdom that is to come. What is Jesus, Jesus calling us to? The fields that are white into harvest, like lambs among wolves. What is he saying? Be like me. Wouldn't we all say that? The goal of our faith is to be like Christ? Wasn't John the Baptist's first announcement to the first disciples? Didn't he say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? The Lamb is lifted on the throne. And so isn't he saying when he sends us out into the field, didn't he bankrupt heaven to come to this earth? He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a man and not only a man, but a servant among men. And he said, if I am your Lord and master, serve you, you serve others. And isn't that the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And isn't the second one like it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it all about laying down your life so that you can lift others up and is in all authority and all everything that God has given us not so that we press others down but to lift them up and isn't it because we want to be like Jesus and then I love and we'll close with this this morning look at Luke 11 the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something. In fact, it's the only thing that we have recorded in the Bible that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them. And they say in Luke 11, Lord, teach us to fill in the blank. Pray. Teach us to pray. And I just find it so crazy. 
that when Jesus is about to be crucified and he's inviting his disciples to pray, what did we find them doing? He said, watch and pray. And they took a nap. But after Jesus ascended into heaven and they were in desperation, where did we find the first disciples, 120 strong, Acts chapter 1, what were they doing? They were praying. Because God had reduced them to a place of desperation where they were crying out to God to do something that only he could do. And what happened in Acts chapter 2? The church was born. And these men and women became an answer to their own prayers and to the prayers of Jesus. That's my prayer for us this morning. Can you see the fields? Maybe you're not in a place where you see yet, and I would pray that God would help you see. They are so white in the harvest on this campus and in this city. Would you join me and pray? Would you be willing to set your little annoying alarm as at least a reminder to pray? And are you willing to open yourself up to pray because you know it probably means that God's going to call you to go? And actually, you already are going. Are you a student on this campus? You're there. Are you a worker in this city? You're there. Do you live in a neighborhood? You're there. Do you go to a grocery store? You're there. Have you ever bought gas? You're there. There are women sitting at the well. There are men sitting at the well. There are people all around you. You're going already. He sent you here. And he will be with you in the midst of that if you lean on him. And what's he calling you to be? Like him. Like him. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And Jesus is still drawing people in this city. And the more you act like him, the more that God will use you to draw others to him. And it will put us on our knees to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this morning, for the privilege that is ours to cry out to you, Abba, Father. And there's nothing in us that would have drawn us to you. It's only because you drew us that we are here. There's nothing in us that would cause us to be repentant of our sin, but because you've convicted us, we have repented. And God, there is nothing in us that would urge us to pray except your spirit that would call us to pray. And so we are able to pray because of you. And there is nothing in us, God, that would enable us to go except your spirit that would call us to go because it's foolishness in this world to give our whole lives with only the expectation that you will reward us forever and eternity. But let us be fools in this world, God. Because we've chosen to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name.